From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. This is our second episode in our special series commemorating the fifth anniversary of the China in the World podcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Professor Wang Jisa, who is on the show for the first time. Professor Wang Jisa is our second guest for our special series of the China in the World podcast episodes commemorating our fifth anniversary. To celebrate our past five years, I'm interviewing five of the premier Chinese scholars that focus on the U.S.-China relationship. And for those that missed the first episode with Professor Cui Li Ru, the former president of the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations, kicker, I encourage you to go back and listen to the episode after this. We're extremely fortunate to welcome Professor Wang Jisu for the second episode in this series. Professor Wang is a professor in the School of International Studies. He's the president of the Institute of the International and Strategic Studies at Beijing University. He is honorary president of the Chinese Association for American Studies. Between 2005 and 2013, Professor Wang Jisu served as the dean of the School of International Studies at Peking University, and prior to that, he was at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. As the director of the Institute of American Studies, as you know, Chinese Academy of Social Science is one of China's oldest and most respected think tanks. Professor Wang is renowned globally as one of China's top America hands. He's closely watched, written, even guided the relationship over his distinguished career. He was named by Foreign Policy magazine one of its top 100. Global thinkers, Jisa. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Paul. In January 2019, in less than two months, we will celebrate the 40th anniversary of the normalization of U.S.-China relations. I want to start by looking back over those 40 years. I want to get your sense. What, in your mind, are the key lessons that we should have learned over the last 40 years? Of our relationship, and how do they? How should they inform the U.S.-China relationship going forward? Two lessons. I think the first lesson we should learn from the forty years of、uh, establishment of、uh, diplomatic relations between our two countries is that China has made great progress、mm. in the forty years, despite ups and downs and some. Problems between our two countries and some problem occurring in China, and then the second lesson as a Chinese scholar, I will emphasize that the relationship was shaped, shaped by both sides、mm-hmm. and the world as a whole.、Mm-hmm. But the main driver, actually, to me, has been China,、mm-hmm. because when we study the lessons of U.S.-China relations,、um, I will give you a, 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 an M. Uh, album of that,、uh, what do you call、um, the picture book?、Mm-hmm. Uh, I I wrote that a prof a preface to that book, and it divided 
the U.S.-China relations in the last two hundred years into four periods. This is a, a picture book of the U.S.-China relationship yes. over two hundred years. Over two hundred years,、mm-hmm. but it was you know the divisions were marked by China's changes rather than in the changes in the United States. Because, for instance, the first episode, the first period. Was the Qing Dynasty? The second period was the Republican period. The third uh, uh, episode was between 1949 and 1979, and so all these changes、mm-hmm. were introduced mainly by China rather、mm-hmm. than by the United States.、Mm-hmm. So it sounds strange because people usually say that United States. Decides was is the main factor in the U.S.-China relationship,、mm-hmm. but I have a different opinion.、Mm-hmm. Of course, United States is still much stronger than China,、mm-hmm. but it has been China's changes that reshaped the direction of U.S.-China relations in the last two hundred years. So, when you hear the vice president's speech, Vice President Pence at Hudson Institute.、Um, Seemingly, taking some credit on the U.S. side for China's progress over the last two or three decades, you would say that's that's not accurate. The United States has done a great deal, not in interest of China, but in the interest of the United States. But it actually promoted changes in China, in China's own interest. So that means that two two countries. Have been working together to promote interest of both countries. It was not just a, a benevolent、mm-hmm. uh, assistance to China. Of, of course, China also pr-、uh, made some changes that made the United States even stronger.、Mm-hmm. So that is my take of the situation. So, th- fast forward to today: Does the U.S.-China relationship, or does the U.S. Still have influence to shape China's trajectory or the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship. Where has it lost influence, and why? No, I don't think the United States lost interest、uh, or influence on, on influence on on the、uh, the direction of China、uh, China's path.、Uh, it is still playing a very very strong impact. Uh, uh, makes a strong impact on China's future. But that does not mean that China is not independent. I think China is the main driver、uh, in China's own direction. So when you hear arguments in the United States,、uh, one example would be the Kurt Campbell, Eli Ratner article, I think in Foreign Policy magazine, where they talk about a U.S. effort to shape China's politics in a more democratic way. And China's economy to become more market-oriented, but that that approach failed because that's not the direction China is moving in. What's your reaction to that?、Uh, Kurt Campbell has some point、uh, in making that argument,、uh, but many people in the United States do not agree with him because they say they are more sober-minded.、Mm. They didn't expect China to change dramatically. Uh, as a result of the relationship, I tend to agree with the most of the critics that 
actually many Americans. No, the Americans are divided.、Mm-hmm. Kurt Campbell may represent、uh, one thought of thinking that、mm-hmm. is. Uh, the United States wanted China to change, and China failed to fulfill the expectations of the United States. But some Americans say, some Americans who do not are not regarded as good China hands or friendly to China, they may make the argument that they never expected China to change its political system or become a democratic country.、Uh, so. They also have an argument to make. That is,、uh, Kurt Campbell and some others had unfounded hopes、mm. uh, that they failed, not、mm-hmm. rather than the United States failed. Perhaps that they were naive in their thinking to a certain degree. Yes, yes. But of course, I I think I also have my fr- frustrations in the bilateral relationship, and I don't 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 con- want to conceal my disappointment. As some of the things、uh, both sides have done. If you look at the relationship today, what do you assess to be the central sources of competition? There's a lot of talk in the United States about the competitive nature of the relationship being one of the more prevalent、uh, features of the relationship today. Where do you see? The central sources of competition. Several years ago, I made this, the statement, and、uh, I cannot tell. I could not tell、uh, whether competition uh, or uh, cooperation was more important, more salient in bilateral relationship. Now I have my conclusion that is competition、mm. is more、uh, salient、mm-hmm. than cooperation.、Mm-hmm. So as to the sources of competition, I can identify five dimensions.、Uh, very briefly, the、mm. first dimension is U.S. politics, domestic politics, and China's domestic politics.、Mm-hmm. Pence, for instance, Vice President Pence made a speech, and the main、uh, audience may be American audiences,、mm-hmm. uh, and also he spoke to the Chinese, and also he spoke to other countries. Uh, but the domestic agenda is very important in U.S.-China relations. China、mm. also has its domestic agenda, so this、mm. is the first dimension.、Yeah. The second dimension is economic and technological.、Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they have more competition now. But、uh, as Wang Qishan, the vice president of China, stated recently in Singapore,、uh, he still thinks that economic and trade relations are. The、uh, ballast or the propeller in U.S.-China relations, I tend to agree because if you look at other dimensions,、uh, it is still a more promising dimension, more cooperative dimension, despite all the difficulties.、Mm-hmm. But we now see more competition in this area, and there is a danger of decoupling between the two economies.、Mm-hmm. And the United States is emphasizing the technological part of it. Mm-hmm. That is, they argue that China st- steals some Mar- American technology. Amer-、uh, Americans also charge、uh, China for the so-called forced technological transfer from American enterprises, and they are not happy with China's government、uh, intervention in economics,、uh, supporting state-owned enterprises. 
and that comes to the next dimension that the economic not that is beyond economics and technological that is pol political systems, economic uh, systems, and the path of each country's uh, road ahead, mm -hmm. or what we call 发展道路 or uh, diplomatic model. Or development no, uh, model. economic model. Or development, sure. Development economic or development model. model. E mm -hmm. e economic development model, um, and that is the third, the third dimension. Mm -hmm. The fourth dimension is international competition in the Asia Pacific region in other countries. But I also emphasize there, are, there is also co cooperation on North Korea, on the Middle East, on some other international issues. Climate change should be included. And finally, there is the so-called power equation or power transition. That is, many people in China say China is a rising power, the United States is declining power. I don't agree. I think both are rising powers, but China is rising more rapidly than mm -hmm. the United States mm -hmm. does. Um, or its starting point was certainly not point, where the U.S. started from, and so yes. A, so to, to me, the core issue of the Competition or cooperation is between what I see as the second and third. That is, economic and technological competition connected or based on the deep differences between the two political economic systems. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the economic aspects, and you mention the technical, um, and I assume there. You're talking about the areas of the frontier technologies, like yes. artificial intelligence artificial and intelligence. quantum computing, yes. robotics, things yes. like yes. that. Things that are outlined in the Made in China 2025 That's document, right. which exactly. has exactly. caused quite a bit of concern. It seems to me that the U.S. side, that the argument is that it is concerned about its ability to compete with China in those areas over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years if the state is going to give huge advantages to Chinese companies in that regard. Is that a legitimate argument on the U.S. side? I think it's legitimate in the American perspective. I emphasize American perspective because they think it is unfair. Mm -hmm. It is uh, unjust. But the Chinese say, well, you make money, we make money. That's fair. Uh, it's just trade. So it reflects the deep-rooted differences in two countries' political values. Mm -hmm. uh, Americans say this isn't fair. This is not reciprocal. Mm -hmm. The Chinese say we are both making money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Chinese, in the Chinese mindset, it is development that is the most important thing. But to the Americans, this is not simply economic development or mm -hmm. economic growth. There are some other issues, other mm -hmm. principles involved. Mm -hmm. That's why I wrote a book uh, entitled The Ultimate Goals in World Politics. I identified five goals. Mm -hmm. uh, security, uh, economic growth or, or wealth. Mm -hmm. And then I also added faith or belief and then justice mm. and freedom. Mm -hmm. I think we Chinese over overemphasized the importance of economic growth because people have other interests to protect. They want justice. 
They want fairness.、Mm-hmm. So in that regard, the United States argument makes some sense to me. But I'm not saying that the United States is 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 it's always right or was justified、right. in this demand for China. It it has its own problems. The it, the problems lies deeply in the American domestic politics and the gap between rich and poor in the United States. So they 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 criticize China for something that they have done at home. Now, what's interesting, of course, on these frontier technologies and the Made in China 2025 is these are also concerns reflected by countries in Europe, namely Germany and the UK and France, and even in the Asia Pacific region. And I think there, my own sense is that's reflecting what countries feel as a vulnerability that China is now more powerful. And has the capability in these areas to really grab on and lead in the future.、Um, and I think what the United States and others say is, we want to compete. We can compete, but we want to do it、mm-hmm. uh, fairly. I have heard the message shift in China over the just over the last couple months. From you know, this is all about U.S. trying to block China's rise or contain China. I've heard a shift in the argument now, where you hear Chinese interlocutors saying, "Look, we recognize we need to make progress on opening up greater our markets. We need to continue to do better on intellectual property and respecting intellectual property. But you cannot change the Chinese system. You that will be an effort in which the United States and the international community will fail." What does China mean when they say that? I think the core of the issue on the Chinese side is the place and the role of the state-owned enterprises, and I think to the Chinese leadership, state-owned enterprises are the lifeline of the rule of the Communist Party of China, and the the legitimacy. Uh, and basis uh, of China's Communist Party leadership lie in a state-controlled economy that they don't want to change, and they could change some technical、uh, issues.、Uh, for instance, more open to the outside world, buying more、uh, commercial goods from the United States and elsewhere, more energy. Other things, but when you touch upon this central issue, that is, you don't like state intervention economy, that China doesn't really want to accept. But it is very difficult、mm-hmm. to distinguish between the two. That is, state-owned enterprises and the fairness of trade and technological transfer. So. That is where the United States and China differ fundamentally. Where does China stand on the question of SOEs and the nature of the state-led economy? Because in the third plenum in 2013, there seemed to be a major shift.、Uh, the language talked about the market being the decisive factor in allocating resources. If you go back to the time. Uh, when Zhu Rongji was the premier, there was a major push to 
shift the emphasis towards private enterprise. Um, and Deng Xiaoping, I think, when started the reform in economic and opening up, seemed to be emphasizing the, 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 the role of the market. So how strong is that debate within China today? Is, there, are, is, is the Chinese leadership still committed to the economic reforms announced at the third plenum? I think this is the fundamental question. We have debates. We have very uh, deep-rooted and widespread debates within China. Looking back at the last 40 years uh, since our diplomatic relations was uh, established, and also since when China began to uh, open itself to the outside world, one stream or one thought is China has made great progress because of the strong leadership of the Communist Party of China. And that is also because of the or all, all state uh, all state system or mm. something like that. Mm. The other view is that we have made great progress because we introduced market economy market economy. We learn from the West. We learn from the West, especially its, its political, its, its, its economic practices, market mechanisms, uh, and an opening, international cooperation. So they each have a very strong representative in, uh, in an internal debate in China. A political is, debate. That, is political still, de- that debate still intense? Still going on. Still going on because when we talk about U.S.-China relations today, trade war, some people say we cannot accept American demand. Some people say we don't accept all of the demands, but some of the demands are reasonable and we should make adjustments to, the, to our economic and political system so that we can be better off. We can introduce more market more market mechanisms, as stated by the third plenum of mm-hmm. the the 18th Party Congress, and that was also repeated in the 19th Party Congress. So this is a very fundamental question. And recently, a scholar here at Beida, an economist, wrote an article that said the the main source of friction in the U.S.-China relationships has to do with the fact that China has not moved on the reforms that it had announced. That if China had moved along, or if China does, as it moves into this next round of reform and opening up, celebrating the 40th anniversary this year of the first round, that that could go a long way to uh, improving the U.S.-China relationship and addressing some of the international concerns. Do you agree with that? I agree with that completely. But I'm not saying that China has done everything uh, wrong. Mm-hmm. China has done a lot of good things, uh, but we still have have weaknesses and problems. We've talked a lot about the economics and trade and the areas of technology, um, but you talk. We hear a lot about the strategic competition when it comes to the Asia-Pacific. And you mentioned that as one of your five areas of central sources of competition. You mentioned the international cooperation, and then you mentioned the regional aspect. The strategic rivalry is growing in the Asia-Pacific. And I want to ask about... New York Times did an article a few days ago saying 
you know, despite the fact that economics and trade are looming large over the U.S.-China relationship, the greatest risk we face is a potential inadvertent clash uh, between military assets, U.S. and Chinese military assets, in the Asia-Pacific. Do you worry about this in terms of I worry of a great deal about uh, military competition or the, the prospects of a, of a limited war warfare between the two sides. So I am in favor of establishing more solid and comprehensive uh, crisis management management uh, mechanism between the two countries. When we dealt with the EP3 incident in 2001 and when the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, uh, the U.S. and Chinese leadership were able to work through those challenges, um, find solutions, and manage to put the relationship back on a constructive track. I think it was largely due to the fact that the leadership in both China and the United States concluded it was in the interest of their countries to do so. Um, today, if you fast forward, do you still think that's true, or do you worry about inadvertent confrontation and our ability to control the escalation? Uh, and as you said, our ability to manage crises. I'm happy that you mentioned the two episodes. And after the two crises, both governments were sobered. And they thought it would be uh, disastrous if they continued that kind of uh, uh, practices. And they are incidental, uh, but I cannot say, well, the bombing of the Chinese embassy was simply accidental. There might be some some kind of uh, uh, plan uh, attack. I don't know. It's, What's it's, interesting about that is if you talk to 99% of Chinese, they say it was not an accident. And if you ask 99% of Americans, we'll tell you it was an accident. So uh, it's. I'm not sure we'll ever come to an agreement. Right. <laughs> so I don't really want to touch upon right. the causes of that event, but it happened. Uh, and the, the second incident, that is the EP3 incident, was more accidental. Uh, and after the, the two crises, the two governments uh, reached some kind of agreements that we would not say, do that again. Mm -hmm. uh, but that lesson was drawn uh, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It was too long time ago. So uh, would we have to have another kind of incident or accident that will remind the two, two sides to be more more sober and more uh, careful in treating our bilateral relationship. I don't really want that to happen. But if that happened, it might not be exactly the, you know, the, the very disastrous thing because I don't want to see any killing of the people, mm -hmm. but both mm -hmm. incidents, China lost lives. And I don't want to, to have that kind of suffering again, but I'm afraid that could happen. Just last month, a uh, U.S. Navy destroyer, Decatur, came within 45 meters of a Chinese Navy destroyer, PLA Navy destroyer. The Chinese destroyer put on bumpers on the ship. I think they thought the two ships were going to collide. So um, 
I think this is an area that the two sides has to pay very close attention to. I will say, when I talk to PACOM or U.S. Navy folks, they say the vast majority of the interactions between U.S. and Chinese Navy are professional, courteous, and safe. But it only takes one incident. Right. right. But uh, 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 my information, based on my uh, uh, limited contact with uh, the Chinese military, they thought it would be safe. It was safe, uh, but it warned the Americans that they would not be too close to a Chinese trip, too close to the, what we say the Chinese territorial waters. But I still don't want to say, see that happening again. As an America watcher, I want to shift to politics here. You have uh, understood the phenomenon of Donald Trump You've looked at it in the context of the U.S.-China relationship. You wrote a very interesting piece in American Interest just shortly after the election. And I'm going to quote you here. You wrote, as a veteran U.S. watcher in China over the past three decades, I was numbed on the November 9th. I was numbed on November 9th at noontime in Beijing when I got the news that Donald Trump had won. It shattered my confidence in analyzing U.S. politics as the vast majority of U.S. media, as well as all the Americans I had talked to about the election during the campaign, had been misleading one way or another. How do you see American politics today and the election of Donald Trump? And what's been the impact on the relationship in your view? I noticed some kind of grievances in the American population at that time and earlier, but I didn't take that serious, too seriously. I think that is a lesson I should learn. That is, the United States has been experiencing, experiencing many difficulties, including basically uh, economic inequality and social cleavage between the haves and have and have nots. And it is also linked to identity politics, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, expressed in a phenomenal book uh, written by uh, uh, Samuel Huntington. Who are we? I mean, the Americans are also thinking today as who they are. Are they? They are, of course, they say they are Americans, but they are different identities in the United States. And these identity politics and the economic and social inequality work together to make the United States disunited. So I'm very much worried about the United States domestic politics. In particular, it sounds like you're worried about the the divisions, the, the growing divisions, the greater polarization. Yes. Divisions not only along party lines, but also along ethnic, religious, and cultural lines. You have previously, when I studied in the United States, they call that political correctness based on multiculturalism. But now the multiculturalism has turned to be less politically correct. The more politically correct thing today is America first. Uh, that I don't like that much. I like more, more my I I'm a more liberal minded <laughs> intellectual. I well, see there's myself. a lot of Americans who don't particularly like America right, first. Right, right, right. But I'm I, I, this is a fact. 
then the United States is it's less uh, coherent, le- right. less uh, unified, mm-hmm. and and that is not only in the United States. That is that is happening everywhere in the world. I emphasize everywhere in the world. Right. So this is there are there are international trends to this. I will say, as an American. Um, I have a lot of concerns about Donald Trump, but on top of the list is my concern, and it's a big one, that previous presidents have identified divisions in our society in the United States and worked to bridge those differences. And I see Donald Trump exacerbating those differences, in many cases for his own political gain. And you've stuck a a nerve with me because that is perhaps my greatest concern and I worry about that in terms of the future of our own country. I agree with you completely. Uh, I'm worried about your country as well. But is it, could it also be the case that what we're witnessing here, even though it's ugly, and the presidential campaign of 2016 was perhaps in my lifetime the ugliest political campaign that I've been witness to, could you also say that it that make an argument that it shows the strength of the American system and that it uncovered, as you say, real grievances that U.S. politicians, whether you're Democrat or Republican, have to understand and take into account as we move forward? And so it was not done, you know, the discovery of the real challenges that we face at home. We, we didn't discover those over political violence. We discovered those through the context of our presidential That's election. the very core of the issue, that your transformation in American history has basically or generally been peaceful, regardless of uh, the civil war, uh, which was violent, uh, which uh, caused uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of, uh, of lives. So... I think gun control is a thing you have mm. to deal with. Mm. And you should avoid um, organized crimes, organized crimes in, in, in violent uh, forms. That is, uh, if you continue to be uh, peaceful, peaceful debates, or even though demonizing each other, that would be, you know, in American history, you also always have that. But I, 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 I confess, I'm frustrated that the debates now became more vicious, mm. more at, at least violent in language, mm-hmm. calling each other that you know four-letter words or something like that. I don't like that. Don't that like, is American, no. not as consistent with American domestic politics in the past. I mean. Politicians were, 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 were could, could con- congrat- congratulate each other, saying, well, I congratulate you as the, the, uh, the elected president, instead of, I would arrest my competitor. <laughs> I agree with you, and um, I think we need to get back to a more civil uh, type of dialogue and engagement in politics. I want to ask you about, you know, as you closely watch the U.S. domestic politics, how do you see the, what are the biggest impacts on the U.S.-China relationship? I think the competition basically is negative, has played a negative role in U.S.-China relations because 
Democrats in the United States focus more on some traditional issues, uh, like uh, political differences, uh, differences in two countries' political systems, economic system. They also they take interest in China's human rights, and I searched uh, Donald Trump's uh, criticism of China. He has never mentioned sure. once, even once, human rights. Right. So, Democrats will remind him mm-hmm. of what they and see re- as, and some Republicans, of course, yes, uh, even yes. within his administration. And, and I also, of course, read uh, uh, Pre- Vice President Pence's speech very and carefully. He talked yeah, about he religious freedom and human rights. Religious freedom, so that is playing to their domestic politics and. So if it's simply Trump himself, he will touch upon economic issues and some technological competition. China made in China twenty twenty five, but the Democrats would remind him that it is against the U.S. political value uh, about China's political practices. You know, in some ways, there's Donald Trump's approach to China. And then there's the rest of the administration's approach to China, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think largely when Donald Trump thinks about China, he thinks about trade and economics. Yes, and getting the economic and trade relationship right in a way that's beneficial for Americans, yes. workers, creating jobs, so, and all the rest. And secondly, I think he thinks about North Korea. I think,、uh, and it's unfortunate. I think his view of China, and and in some ways the Asia Pacific region. Is around those two issues, but the rest of the administration, under General Mattis and under Secretary of State Pompeo, and you know even hardliner John Bolton, I think has a much broader view of America's Asia Pacific policy and how China fits into that. But Donald Trump himself, I agree, he's not thinking about human rights. It's much more transactional. Yes,、history. but also I'm afraid of some kind of、uh, a game of. Um, good cop, bad cop.、Hmm. That is, Trump doesn't really want to say too negative things about China. He says Xi Jinping is a good friend of mine. I respect him. I respect China. But、uh, the vice vice president and some others were,、uh, are delegated to say something more serious about China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does is has Donald has Donald Trump's approach worked in terms of Praising President Xi and talking about his friendship, I don't know.、Mm-hmm. I I'm a, not a politician, so I don't know what the Chinese are thinking about his、right. praise of Xi Jinping. Because、uh, President Xi never praised Donald Trump that way. He、right. never says Donald Trump is a good friend of mine. I respect the United States. He gave him a good visit to China back a year ago、mm-hmm. in the state visit. Plus and unprecedented access to the Forbidden City. He seemed to treat him、uh, respectfully when he was here. But I agree, he has not lavished the kind of praise <laughs> that Donald Trump has、uh, on him. As we go forward, Jisa, I want to talk about the relationship. It sounds like we're at a time, critical juncture, where we need to make some modifications on how we deal with each other. The U.S. think tank community is intensely debating the question of what should the new, updated U.S. approach to China be, 
as you think about that question, what are, in your mind, the key considerations that should inform a new approach to U.S.-China relations? I think on the American side, they should reduce the rhetoric in uh, demonizing China and the Chinese government because that might backfire. On the Chinese side, we should think more about the specific issues the Americans are talking about. We cannot simply ignore them, saying, well, this is a very Chinese way. That is, your attitude is not good. Mm-hmm. Your questions, I don't know. Uh, no, this is... The so tone China, is important. Yes. The tone to, is important. The tone is important, but the tone is not simply the tone is important. The specific issues facing our two countries are more important than the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So we should touch upon the specific issue rather than say you, you should uh, address your attitude toward China. I was at a, a very good discussion in Washington, D.C. recently hosted by the Brookings Institution and the Yale China Center. Mm-hmm. Some of your friends were there, Mike Lampton, Evan Madero, Susan Thornton. Mm-hmm. Um, there were several panels during the day, but the last panel of the day asked the experts one question, which was, are the U.S. are U.S. and Chinese interests fundamentally incompatible? How would you answer that question? I wouldn't say they're fundamentally incompatible. I think some of them are incompatible. Some are not. For instance, I mean, the differences the, between the two political systems and two value systems are incompatible at this moment. Mm. But both countries will change. Especially, I think China will change more faster, faster than the United States. The United States changes also very fast, but China is changing faster. So in the long run, I think these two value systems could be compatible. For instance, if we compare the value systems between the United States and Saudi Arabia, <laughs> that I think they are more com- incompatible than U.S.-China relations uh, because we, we don't believe in any, any super, you know, uh, God. But you have different gods. You have mm. different... So, the, the Differences between two, the two gods are greater than uh, between one god and one c- c- civilian society. Mm. So that is my comparison. Mm. Some of the other issues are compatible because we, we buy and sell goods to each other and we cooperate, we make money together. We have cooperation over North Korea or over the Middle East. And a number of global issues, global government issues, climate change, environmental protection, they are very compatible. A lot of people are arguing in the United States that engagement in the Obama and Bush administrations did not work. Um, Now, of course, in the national security strategy, it's about strategic competition. Um, What's the right framework to think about this going forward? Is there something in between? I am still, maybe I'm holding my, my wishful thinking, but I would like to see in the next three years when the United States produces another uh, national security document, it will no longer state that China is the main uh, international competitor. 
or rival or uh, adversary. Uh, but I don't know whether that will happen or not. It depends on two sides. I think especially it depends on our side. Because if we treat the, the, the current problem more soberly and more practically, we have a brighter future. You've been very generous with your time this morning. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, especially for our special series where we're interviewing five of the premier Chinese scholars. Uh, you, of course, are in that group, and it's a pleasure and an honor to interview you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. I am very glad that I, I could do it. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.